think the biggest surprise was the taster who was at the pass with us. There's an official presidential taster who, you know, I mean, it's almost like when you're doing a tasting for someone or you're like, you know, teaching service. You know, we put up two of everything, secret services everywhere. You know, there's a lot of pressure. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Justin Smiley is the chef of Il Buco Elementari and author of the now classic live fire cookbook, Slow Fires. I wanted to have Justin in to talk about his life in and out of the kitchen and what is currently exciting him about running one of New York's most popular restaurants. We also talk about his previous restaurant, Upland, and what it was like to have the Obama family as frequent diners. I always love catching up with Justin and hope you enjoy this talk. Justin Smiley, welcome to Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a minute. I love uh, seeing you, and we've we've had meals together. We've we we have a shared love of Korean cuisine. Um, I first got to say, where are you eating right now in Fort Lee? Where are your spots? I just got to know. Our usual right now is uh, Han Nam, which is actually like Cliffside Park. Yeah, charcoal, super delicious, amazing banchan. You live near there, um, and you've seen the neighborhood kind of change. Is there something happening in Fort Lee or Leonia in northern Jersey in the Korean community? I mean, there's just always, you know, kind of new little things. But, you know, the old standbys are always the most popular. Yeah. You know, like Sundown Kang on Sunday night, you're still going to wait, you know. Yep. Mishal House. You yeah. Know, yeah, Mishal House is still popping, Gamsutang. Yep. Love it. Um, That's like right where I live. Oh, yeah, right yeah. right by Mishal House, yeah. We don't have a lot of working chefs. Um we had Stefano from um, Residora on recently, but I, I got to always like ask right now, 2022, how, how is shit going for you right now? I mean, it's busier again. Sweet. You know, um, Il Buco Amari in the summertime was truly cranking up over our first summer. Um, we had a crazy busy spring at Alimentari last year. Um, and I think things are really looking up or trending up. That's cool. Um, what about the cost side of the coin? I feel like that is always covered in, mm-hmm. in like media. Um, prices are up. Yeah, I mean like thirty to forty percent across That's, the board. And you can't really raise your prices thirty percent. No, there's definitely a threshold. It's just you know it's more about all of the management of the dollar in between. Interesting. Right? Like from when it comes into the backsword, make sure you're stewarding properly, make sure you're storing properly, um, and then you're yielding every possible delicious edible ounce that you can. Right. It's It comes down to like the mechanical of like breaking down raw ingredients, making sure the yield is proper, the waste is low. Right. You know, and then like follow like your trends in sales and just make sure that, you know, you're making a really educated guess. <laughs> Is that what it comes down to? <laughs> I mean, ultimately, and like, you know, if you are like watching your cost, then the likelihood is you're serving super fresh stuff all the time. Yeah. I I, I think uh, that's the goal, right? You, you're, you're, you're ordering on a Tuesday and you're selling by a Thursday. Everything's out and then you get your weekend. Absolutely. I mean, Alamadari, we're a little deeper with storage because of like butchering and salumi and whatnot. Yeah. Um, like places like Almari, it was easy. We just kind of like filled up and emptied every single day, you know, and the walk-in was really just kind of a closet for in between. We're recording this in October, and I, I have to ask you, there's been a lot of writing recently about the restaurant reservation, about 
the reservation as cultural currency, the reservation being a, a status symbol, and how um, more than ever having that that table from Resi or from Black Market Resi or wherever is important as having a great watch. How, are you feeling this having worked in the industry for two decades? I mean, look, I think, you know, it's always been kind of currency in New York City, right? And that's why, like, all the lists in the fall and the spring are so important. Definitely. Ilbuco, like as a company, has such a long history in the neighborhood and is just always kind of full. So, you know, I can't absolutely speak to that. Yeah. Um, we had Donna Leonard on the show. Uh, I'll link to it is, is years ago. It's like 2019. She's one of the owners of El Buco or the owner and your partner in crime. It sounds – have you seen The Ghost, by the way? No. You've never seen The Ghost? There's a ghost at the in the basement of El Buco, right? Yes. You've never seen it? I mean, allegedly. Okay, so you've never seen it. She had a great story. Poe lived there, right? Uh -huh. The Casca Amontillado. That's crazy. That's your restaurant right there. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to that question about the actual, um, about the, the reservations. How do you as the chef and, and partner there, how do you make sure everyone's happy? Because it's like a lot of unhappy people and calling, texting, trying to get in, all that stuff. I mean, you know, at Alimentari, just because it is so communal and kind of like open and free. Yeah. Um, you know, again, I think we kind of escape that a little bit. You need to have a seat, but you can like kind of get people in quicker a little bit. Yeah. I mean, and with us too, like reservations, I mean, obviously we take them and there's certain tables that are more prized than others. We actually just did a redesign of the front Alimentari space. So you actually kind of have like sushi counter seating, like right along mm -hmm. where all the salumi is sliced. But every part of the restaurant eats so differently, you know? So it's not like a traditional restaurant mm -hmm. where there's just this kind of, you know, four top, six top, whatever. You know, mm -hmm. the room is always like in flux. So reservations are different because you might end up at the high bar counter. You might end up sitting in the table in the front. Which is a great table. It's a great table. Love that spot. I've been there. Feels like It feels like that feels like Riscali in Rome. It feels like Italy, mm -hmm. you know? It feels has that you've really done a nice job. I mean, she has beautiful taste. Yeah. And let me ask you about, like, selling Mediterranean Italian food. Like, it never really goes out of style. Or is that is that just me riffing or is that true? No, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's approachable, you yeah. know. And, like, within that discipline, it's always about, you know, freshness and immediacy. Um, and it's more, I mean, I hate to use the word homey. Um, totally accurate. But, you know, like, it's an easier thing to kind of, like, gather around. It's a great place to see celebrities. There's like a lot of celebrities that hang out there at Ilbuco Elmentari. I mean, Ilbuco Elmentari and, you know, Ilbuco Bond Street has always been kind of like, you know, that secret select uh, celebrity haunt. It feels that way. It's always in the mix. Um, I have no shame in talking about celebrities because I think our listeners want to hear about it. Like, are there any good good people who have been coming in? Like guys who, athletes, celebrities, who, who who's coming in? You got to have a few. I mean, I've been pretty head down lately. <laughs> I know you. Have. You always are. No, but there's got to You got to have some clientele. Uh, I think you know in Almare this summer we had Madonna come in. Wow, that that's the restaurant in the Hamptons, yeah. and that was pretty cool. Yeah, absolute legend. What did she order? Anything good? Very late night, just like fish salad. Yeah, I love it. I mean that that's. I mean, Il Buco, you have to go. You have to go to this space. Like, it's definitely an institution in New York City, downtown. I mean, when did it open originally? So 94 was Bond Street. Amazing. And then end of 11 was Alamantine. Yeah, I mean, end of 11, so it's like over 10 there. But, like, the, the 94... 
that time in like Soho and Nolita. I guess it's not that those neighborhoods though. You call it Noho. Noho. Yeah, Noho. Noho Star was right on the corner. I want to back up to Upland because that restaurant you named after your hometown. You mm-hmm. were, I mean, it's a very personal restaurant. You're no longer there and you're not going to say a lot about it, but I want to know that was like a very special restaurant. I loved going there. The food was excellent and it was stuck in like a crazy weird neighborhood on Park Avenue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a little crazy. It was just off the avenue. Um, yeah. You know, it was Manzanilla before it was us. You know, it was an interesting challenge because, you know, that part of park changes all day. So we were easily busy for lunch. You know, the Murray Hill kind of like stroller set kept us super busy at brunch and then dinner. Um, So like to fully approach like it even that way because it was, you know, a little boardroom, a little publishing, a little neighborhood, you know. Definitely. And then a little bit of like a sitting U.S. president. Yeah. Would would roll in. I mean, that was what I was. I mean, the, the Obamas loved your restaurant. That was pretty wild. Yeah, they came in twice. Yeah, that's like very cool. Um, not not to like talk about you're no longer there. Um, what what's it like having a president come into your restaurant? Not a lot of chefs have that. I think the biggest surprise was the taster who was at the pass with us. Stop. There's an official presidential taster who, you know, I mean, it's almost like when you're doing a tasting for someone or you're like, you know, teaching service. You know, we put up two of everything. Made sure it was to spec, and then it went out to the table. And then they watch you make it? Everything. I mean, you know, and like in a building like that in a park, there's like multiple egresses and secret services everywhere. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of pressure. Yeah, absolutely. And it's probably pressure also to make sure it tastes good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, but I mean, we just told the guys, you know, it's what you do every day. Yeah. You know. You've trained them well. You, they've worked it with your team, you know, as a team. Yeah. It's the short rib though, right? The short rib. That was one of the guys. One of the guys. And, you know, we're still selling quite a few of them at Alimentari. I've yeah. kind of, like, modified the technique a little bit these days, you know, but ultimately the same result at the end. I think we actually get a more concentrated bark and it picks up the smoke a lot better. Why'd you leave? What? Upland. Upland? You know, I, I kind of followed the music and it was time to go play somewhere else. Absolutely. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense when you move on and evolve. Um, from Park Avenue, now you're back in you're no in NoHo, and it's maybe more your style. I mean, I'm a little more downtown. I mean, every restaurant, every grill, you know, every oven you cook in is gonna kind of teach you something else. Um, you know, the other thing in New York is like when you move around from neighborhood to neighborhood to neighborhood, I think it makes you sharper as a professional chef because you have to learn how to appease more taste, mm-hmm. how to. You know, kind of reflect the client a little bit more all day. It's it's well said. I mean, it, it's definitely the flexibility of the chef is important. Um, let's go to some of your cooking history. Um, after the CIA, you were for six years under Jonathan Waxman at Barbudo. Legendary place. It's open now. It was closed for a little while, but it's back open um, in a new location. Um, I'd like to know, what did Jonathan teach you? Are there, is there a dish that you took away from that experience? I mean, initially I started working for Jonathan when Washington Park was still open. Right, Washington Park. Listen, okay. Um, And I was there, you know, just about two years. Um, You know, that time in New York, it was a little fancier. It was a little more uptown. Um, And a lot of my early training was a little more serious. Mm -hmm. Um, Not to say that Jonathan wasn't serious, but a feeling of whimsy and, you know, a casualness of approach was, like, very important. And it needed to feel like it fell, not it was placed. 
Um, cool. You know, and cool. like it was like details like looking how to checking out the architecture of a, of a salad, you know, how it's going to eat, how it's going to feel. You know, it was very food makey kind of intelligent moments. Yeah. You know, and it was like sensibility and approach. It was never recipe driven. Articulate. Thank you for sharing. It's cool to hear about how um, it falls not placed. I think the casual diner of today doesn't maybe see what New York was like in the 90s because it was very structured. It's very different. different. You know, and Barbudo at that time, I mean, this is pre Highline. Totally. Um, it was like us, West Beth, and Tortilla Flats. West Village we're talking about. This is like definitely institutions there. Very residential, less affluent, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, the neighborhood, like when we opened, was still, you know, a little sketchy. And, yeah. and it wasn't very well lit. No, um, meatpacking adjacent, really. I mean, crazy yeah. times there. But it was very, you know, it is such a artistically entrenched kind of neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and the clientele was very open-minded. You know, Jonathan's initial partnership was with Fabrizio Ferri from mm-hmm. Industria. So there was always a lot of creatives around and like the rent was cheaper. The space was already there. So we took a lot of risks. Mm-hmm. Um, we were buying crazy things from everybody. Yeah. You know, a lot of like liver and like, you know, you could put veal liver on and feel comfortable buying 20 pounds and know that mm-hmm. you're going to sell it out. Because you were pushing it or because that was just the taste of the audience and the crowd? Taste audience. Taste crowd. It was a little more vagabond. And, you know, because the prices were a little bit less, people would take a risk. Yeah. People dined out in a different way then. I mean, also, like, back to the reservation, you could walk in, right? Right. I mean, and I think that you could totally walk in. And Barbudo was always kind of meant to just be, like, everybody's place, you know? And, I mean, I think whether it's Upland or Alamantar, I always try to kind of maintain that sense of space. And we're lucky to have you, not you're lucky to be here. Amazing. Who are you reading when you were at uh, Barbudo or Gramercy Tavern? Who, 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 like in terms of the critics, and do you, do you recall this era? We talked to a lot of writers and, and former critics and current critics. Who are you reading? Ruth. Mm-hmm. Um, that was probably the first formidable <laughs> one. Right. Uh, you know, thank goodness she has a long history with Waxman. Yeah. <laughs> um, has always been super friendly. I mean, you know, I guess early on I was always, like, really enamored with the work of, like, Dorothy Kalins and yeah. Coleman Andrews. and Cool names, yeah. You know, what was happening there. They, like, struck a chord with me. Yeah, Savor was, uh, in the early days under Coleman, definitely pioneering publication. I mean, it was the first thing I thought that, you know, that was the food that spoke to me. And I think initially that's why I gravitated towards Waxman. And there wasn't a lot of places that that kind of very handmade, you know, food was being shown. And it was always like a little, you know, a little messed up, a little fucked up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I thought was like really pretty about it. Yeah. I mean, we call it like farm to table now. I mean, there was like an element of that. Like it was imperfect because it came from like a small producer, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, even with farm to table these days, I mean, you know, it's not what it was 20 years ago. I mean, I remember when we first opened Alamantar, I'd put as much produce as I could in my backpack, throw the rest of the produce in a cab, and, like, we'd race our fixed gears back to the restaurant, you know? And now it's really easy to buy all these farmers' produces. Like, I mean, especially when you do, like, with Baldor, mm-hmm. you know? It's brought to your door just as immediate as the marketplace and then you can kind of just use the market as like more of a library now interesting so it's more like a sampling a tasting room for you as a chef exactly and it's like where you come into contact with what you're going to work in you know it gets you out of that screen mode yeah 
the produce is tough in New York State. I feel like it, this, it's very seasonal and it's very fleeting, right? It can be. I mean, you know, I still think there's tremendous bounty out of like, you know, mid-central New York, like Hudson Valley, like what, you know, Zaid does at Norwich Meadow Farms, mm-hmm. I think is incredible. Um, you know, then we did a lot of work with balsam out east this last summer. Cool. You know, and things like just the mustard greens, you know, there wasn't a wide selection of produce, but yeah. the things that they did were really well curated and really well put together and thoughtful. Yeah. So let's go to the Hamptons. Cooking out there, I mean, was the seafood, was it a seafood focused restaurant? Seafood focused restaurant. And, you know, Montauk cool. is a crazy fishing ground. So, I mean, you know, the fish still comes into it in like a rigor. Yeah. Um, you know, 15, 20 striped bass a day. You know, five, six fluke a day. You know, it was a ton of fish. And that's just really good, high-quality fish, too. Yeah, I mean, even just the quality of, like, the little neck clam that comes, you know, and just that first burst, you know, when they open up and release, you know. It's just more sea-like. It's not like this thing that's been sitting in seawater. Oh, definitely. No, it has. it's been living like six hours prior. Living its best life. Living its best life. And then, yeah. I mean, what what was the vibe like in the Hamptons, like cooking out there? Had had you done that before? Uh, Yeah. I mean, actually, before I worked at Alimentari and after Waxman, I worked for Sunset Beach. I did two summers there. And, you know, I mean, I was at the High Line with Balaz and Dan Silverman when he opened that. Right. So, I mean, that was two different iterations of Washington Street as well. Yeah, the standard, right? Talking about the standard grill. The standard grill. Yeah. But the first summer at Sunset, I think, is kind of what taught me to be a chef for real because mm. you're on an island. There's no second chances. You know, and it is a, it's the same demanding clientele as New York uh, or as Manhattan. Um, so you <laughs> still have to be able to deliver in the same way. Yeah, but like know? with way less resources. Way less resources. We're doing like <laughs> a thousand people a day and there's walk-ins that aren't turned on for seven months and you're chasing raccoons. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just... mean, like it's a thing. Oh, man. But you're going to go back next summer, do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been since 2009, like when I first came back to work with Donna, we did a pop-up at the Maram in Montauk. And mm-hmm. that was like a convection oven and two pit barrel smokers. Yeah. You know. It's kind of how you like it though, right? I love it lean, <laughs> you know. And it forces you to be creative with the equipment. And that was another thing like with Waxman. It's like, you know, we basically had one oven, one tank to boil pasta. Yeah. A couple of not so great burners and a plancha. Yeah. <laughs> and and you plan- figure it out. Yeah, sign of a, a real a real chef and artist there when you can work with very little resources. I love that about you and, and your colleagues. Um, I want to hear about your pizza uh, point of view. Smiley Pizza It's part of uh, Il Buco. It's not like a separate brand, but it's kind of there, right? It's like a thing. It's, it's getting there, you know. Cool. I mean, you know, like talk about cooking something in a different oven every time. Every time you put, you know, basically the same dough – same percentage of flour, same percentage of water, and a different oven, just the reaction is, like, completely different. So, you know, we've been fortunate to get to cook it in a couple different ovens now. Yeah. Um, and a mixture of flours, and we have a lot of different, you know, heirloom varieties at Almatar that we play with. So it's been a lot of tweaking, you know. So what, describe the, I guess, the the origin uh, of the style. I mean, does it have an origin? I mean, you know, I mean, I'm from Southern California, so it's definitely more of that kind of pizza. You know, it's not really Neapolitan. It's a little more sturdy. Um, There's a lot of veggies. And, you know, depending on the time, I've also done a lot of work with, like, you know, trying to get more percentage of, like, whole whole wheat flours Mm -hmm. in there. 
So yeah, I think of like the the different flowers as being a California style pizza. Or California pizza, kind of yeah. I mean, and, and like people like Nancy, like you know, of course, spare that and like Wolfgang, and it's a different, yeah. you know. And that's the pizza I knew younger. I mean, I grew up on Round Table, but yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we all start somewhere. Absolutely. <laughs> um, do you think you'll move back west at any time? No. Yeah. You know, I mean, I go back and I, you know, I have a couple of family members there, but you know, New York is home. I love it. You uh, you wrote a book with Clarkson Potter here here at Penguin Random House in 2015, Slow Fires. Um, I love that book. Thank it's, you very much. It's great. It's classic. I mean, it's 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 been out for a while, and it's referenced. We sell it sometimes as a as a downloadable cookbook uh, on taste, but I love it. What were you teaching readers with that book? I mean, so at that time, I mean, it was in between my transition of Alimentari and Upland. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, you know, we organized it into 52 recipes, you know, braising, grilling, and roasting, and kind of teaching people how to set up projects within those disciplines. Cool. You know, and, you know, you can do a slightly more elongated cooking, a more seasoned thoroughly cooking, and allow it to have the time to dry out. You know, it's teaching people to make a plan that helps them achieve a result, which is what any recipe does, right? But if you step it out and you divide the act of time daily. Yeah. I think it, the, the idea that you're doing only 52 recipes and you're actually having a plan, a lot of recipes don't go there. I mean, I think it's either like 150 recipes or it's like six recipes. So having yeah. your in between is cool. Yeah, I mean, someone, I mean, this guy, Anthony Rose, who's got a couple joints in Toronto, is a great chef. You know, he always told me, he's like, you got to know what it's going to look like on the other side of the pan. You know, mm. and if that's what you're thinking about as a cook, it's like, you know, that's what you're trying to teach, like the reader. Are there any cookbooks that you're you're going to these days that you it could be new? They could be they could be new. Uh, they could be older cookbooks. They could be um, classics. Are you a non cookbook guy? Oh, I mean, I love cookbooks. I think I still fall back on like cooking by hand. I still fall back on Zuni. Oh, cool. Um, I love Dave Tannis. I think Ignacio's book was beautiful from Estella. Estella book is good. Is great. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think I have like over four hundred cookbooks, and it's kind <laughs> of just you know pulling them off the shelves. You have them at the restaurant. Some at the restaurant, and yeah. mostly at home. Big question: follow up cookbook? Would you would you consider taking Slow Fires to a different angle? What do you think of a totally new cookbook? You know, Slow Fires was intended for like the home cook, but I think I would try to. Maybe teach people how to set more stuff on fire in their house. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, like I recently did a pop-up with the people that were the designers at Upland, mm. Roman and Williams, and, you know, Stephen had built this giant fire pit. And it was kind of a collection of both of our cast iron, you know, uh-huh. batteries and, like, campfire post grills. And, you know, I mean, it was crazy. You know, we started, you know, the ducks off, like, four and a half hours before we cooked them. And, like, oh. everything was literally cooked on the pit. Fire. So you had a bunch of vintage cast iron just, like, hanging out in the fire. Oh, man. Vintage cast iron, and then I just bought this, like, cowboy walk, which I had never used before. What is that? I don't know what that is. It's, like, a giant 52-inch, super heavy cast iron piece. And, like, I did, like, a clam fish stew, and I just put that, like, right on the charcoal. Oh, wow. And unbelievable. This doesn't feel like midtown Manhattan when no. this is happening. No, you got to have a little more space. A little more space. 52-inch cast iron walk. It, or a paella pan. Sounds kind like. of, but it has like that same kind of concave slope. Yeah. You know? So it felt like it was an actual walk. Wow, that's cool. Do you cook over fire? Do you do you have opportunity to do that yourself, like in a more of a civilian setting? Yeah, I mean at home. Yeah. You know, Kamado grills, couple of yakitori grills. Oh, cool. Like uni pizza oven, <laughs> you know, 
Those yeah. were hard to get during the pandemic, those unis. They were crazy. I think I waited like six months. <laughs> I think a lot of people did. So what's your what's the verdict on it? I think they're amazing. I mean, it's like anything, you know, it's a different oven. So yeah. the, the stretch, the proof, you know, the amount of humidity in the dough, like there's no dome space like there is in yeah. a bigger oven. But they're, it's like they're tight. They're very tight. You know, but I think they're a lot of fun. I think like meat comes out incredible in it. You know, like seared steak. Yeah. You know, brick chicken. That's something that we don't think about when you look at the other marketing is for pizza, but it's definitely good for just like general. For like anything. And yeah. it takes like 25 minutes to heat up. Again, it's like I think, you know, like with the cookbook, it's teaching people how to be more fluid in like whatever their particular cooking situation is. We ask all guests on Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited money, this could be a billion dollars. Justin, what would that book be? You know, maybe pick 10 things and then just, like, you know, try to cook it on, like, you know, as many different things as I can. Ah. And then, like, just talk about that experience and, like, you know, how I arrived at a conclusion in each space or, you know, certain time of year. So what? give me one of the 10 items that you want to cook. Chicken on a string. Chicken on a string in a microwave and a grill on a wok. I did these little poussins, um, kind of like a achiote marinade, but cooked on like little mini Coke cans, oh. like beer can chicken first, and then like yeah. broke them down and then crisped them up in like the little uni. Um, oh, yeah, but I mean, like beer can chicken is hysterical. It looks funny. It, it's, I mean, it definitely has a purpose. The the, the liquid cooks. Yeah. It the liquid steam. cooks, but also the shape that it gives the entire bird, like what that steam does on the inside of the cavity. You know, the shape because yeah, it's formed around beer can. That's true. And then you pull it out, and you're like, oh man, this is actually looks like it has like structure to it. Yes, it's cool. Justin Smiley, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 